So for the last few weeks, um, we've been working through uh, a certain section of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, uh, a teaching on how to be a follower, a disciple. And he's been teaching some uh, for the last few weeks about what it looks like to practice our faith. You know, sometimes as Christians, we get the idea that, uh, that I've become a follower of Jesus, I've given my life to him, and now I just have to try really hard not to mess up. And Jesus didn't intend that for us. He actually gave us practices, things that we can do to grow in righteousness. And the more we practice doing the right thing or the good things, the less tempted we are to do sinful things. So if you remember um, a couple weeks ago, we talked some about how these practices, these spiritual practices, whether it's prayer or fasting or generosity or uh, gathering on Sunday to worship, whatever our spiritual practices are, the more we practice them, the more faithful we become, the easier faith gets for us. Uh, last week we talked some about how when we have practice makes perfect, then we started talking about perfect priorities, the sort of priorities that we have uh, in terms of God's kingdom and um, serving God over our own kingdoms. Um, setting God's kingdom as our top priority. Talked about some about storing treasures in heaven because that's where we want our heart to be or our lives to be. This week, we're going to be focusing some on this idea if, uh, if practice makes perfect and gives us perfect priorities, then we start talking some about perfect peace. And I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. It's as if Jesus is working through this sermon on the mount and each time he gets to the new section, it's almost as if he's anticipating someone who's saying, yeah, but Jesus, what about? And I'll get into that in a bit. So this week, um, this week, I've been talking a lot about uh, worry and money and provision. Uh, if you remember last week, I'm talking some about our treasures in heaven, treasures on earth. And I have to say, these last couple of weeks have been challenging for me. And that's mainly because I still, uh, even after over a decade of following Jesus, which some of you might chuckle at because that's just a fraction of how long you've been following Jesus. But even after a decade um, of really following him, uh, or more, of, more than a decade, actually, I've almost been here a decade. But um, after following him faithfully, I still wrestle with questions about, um, what do I do with all the stuff God has blessed me with? How do I keep sharing it more? Do I have too much? Do I need to share more? Um, and what do I do about worrying about the future? About, will I have enough? Like, well, you know, should I save more? Because you never know what might happen. And I've been thinking about how it actually just occurred to me while we were singing this morning. You know, uh, uh, sometimes I lead people. Uh, I, I guide people on trips or I take them with me up a mountain or something like that. And usually I take people to places where I've been before. You know, I know the way. I don't need a map. And I just, I can just show them I know what to watch out for. And I feel like uh, the last couple weeks, rather than treading ground that I know really well, I feel like actually I'm just looking at the map and um, telling us where I think it leads. <laughs> and I think about this, so rather than if you've seen pictures of guides, like they, you know, they're out front, they know exactly where to go. I feel more like the dad in a family car trip, you know, where they're like the map is upside down and everybody's upset about where we're going and the dad doesn't really know. He's just doing the best that he can. I kind of feel like I'm just doing the best that I can as I'm understanding or reading God's word, as I'm reading this sermon from Jesus. When I read these words, uh, I feel a lot of conviction. Um, I'm still trying to work through that. You know, Lord, how much of this is, is misplaced guilt and how much of it, God, do I need to listen to um, in terms of the way I live, in terms of conviction? Um, Listening to Jesus, hearing him uh, this week saying, you know, I, like, I'm feeling I need to share more and worry less. Um, 
I find too, I was thinking about this week, I, I tend to worry more about short term. I don't really worry too much about the future, uh, about like, you know, oftentimes people think about retirement. Some people are worried about that. I don't really think too much that far off. I think more about like, how are we going to pay for things right now? And not because we're having any trouble with that, but because I think that's just more how I'm wired. Um, I was thinking about this week, I'm a financial planner's nightmare um, in that I don't have a goal. You know, you'll see those financial planning commercials. They'll say, like, what's your number? And what they mean is, like, have you set a goal for how much money you plan to have squirreled away so that when you retire, you can live like you wanted to? Uh, if any of you are financial planners, none of you are, but uh, if you know one, don't tell them that I said I don't have a goal. I don't have a number. Um, in fact, I think about it too, you know, that even the idea of retiring, you know, I, I don't know, we'll see as I get older, but right now I, I would actually really enjoy working. I mean, I, I love being a pastor. I mean, there's, it's not always easy, but man, I love this work. Um, I want to do this for a long time and it feels less like a job and more like a calling. Um, but it still does work out some of those questions of, you know, how do we think about living? How do we think about God's provision in our lives? And Jesus is addressing that uh, this morning. Now, some of you might be having questions about this. You know, some of you are retired. Uh, some of you, I know, like, in your retirement, there's very few of you, as I talk with you, who are worried about striving to get more. And those of you who are retired, I'm not hearing you say, man, I'm trying to figure out how to, how to make even more money. If anything, I hear some of you who are, retire, who are retired kind of concerned about, you know, I need to make sure this lasts. And so it's less about ambition for more, but it's sometimes it can be more of a tight-fistedness with what you have because you're not sure how you might need it later. Um, sometimes, too, it's, um, so you're not so much worried about misguided ambition, um, but just worried that you'll have enough. Some of us are in the middle of our lives, uh, me included, um, and we do have to wrestle. I feel like I have to wrestle more with priorities um, in terms of where is my treasure, uh, where am I putting, placing up treasure, uh, and also, too, about worrying about the future. Some of you might still feel like you're still just uh, getting started and you're worried about how am I going to pay the bill. You're not worried about retirement in 20 years or 30 years. You're, retur- you're concerned about how am I going to pay the bills next week, um, let alone college uh, for your kids. Um, and sometimes, too, like <clears throat> it can feel like money is where we, you know, that's, that's really how we live. That's where our life revolves. Um, and you can worry about it a lot sometimes. Worrying about it late into the night, early into the morning, concerned about how are we going to make this work. And it, it's, uh, I don't think God wants that for us, worrying about those things. So what does Jesus have for us? How does he, what word does he have? How do we approach wealth? How do we approach worry and, and anxiety in our lives? You know, should we plan? Should we worry? Like, is it right to worry? What does God have to say? Well, that's one of the things I love about the Word of God is that Jesus, even though he spoke these words uh, almost 2,000 years ago, they still have uh, relevant meaning for us right now. So if you would, uh, open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 to 34. It's also in your sermon guide here if you just want to read it there. Uh, and follow along as we dig into what Jesus said as we start working through it. All right? Jesus begins with this. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life. All right, so the first thing is that we have this word, therefore. Uh, we need to, there's always this saying, if there's a therefore, you need to figure out what it's there for. 
Okay? You need to figure out what is Jesus talking about because he's referring to something that he just said. And if you remember, this comes from the week before uh, where he says, do not store up, I'm just giving you the bullets, okay? This is the, these are the main points. He says, do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth, but instead store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. And that's by doing righteousness, by being generous, by devotion, by um, helping other people, by loving others. So this is how we store up treasures in heaven. Then he says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Okay, so this is the first part. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Then he also says this. He says, no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. So there's kind of two points here. One is store up treasure in heaven because where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. Second one is this. You can't serve two masters. Okay, you can't have it both ways. You can't follow God faithfully and be devoted to getting rich. Okay, you can't have it both ways. So Jesus says all that. And he says, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life. And this is what I mean where people might be saying, so Jesus says, store up for yourself treasures in heaven. You can't serve two masters. And I can hear Jesus, or maybe somebody, or he's thinking somebody already is going to ask him, okay, yeah, Jesus, that's really great, but what do I do with, like, how do I actually turn that into food? How do I live? And Jesus says, don't worry about your life. Okay, you don't need to worry about it. He says, "What? Oh, sorry, um, don't worry about your life. What you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear, is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Now, this is a rhetorical question. We all know the answer to this question. The answer is obvious. Yes, of course. Our, food is more than, or, sorry, our life is more than the food we eat, the stuff we drink, and the clothes we wear. Absolutely. All right. So now, this is, the, this is sort of the main point. Now Jesus is going to start building it up and helping us understand it. Okay? So he says this, Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away, store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they are? Now it's interesting to look at the birds of the air, and I did some study, because you know, it's a metaphor like this. There's lots of things you can draw from it. The main point is that we're supposed to realize that God loves us more than the birds, and the birds are taken care of. God takes care of them. But there's a few things also to realize, too, that one, the birds don't hoard. Birds don't store up. You don't see giant birdhouses with vaults next to them, right? With all the money that they've stored up, or all the seeds that they've stored up, or all the... the you don't see birds with, like, a row of birdhouses, you know, or... or um, multiple houses. I mean, you could make one argument that many birds have a summer home and a winter home, right? You could make that, you know. The, the term snowbirds, you know, that even some birds have a place in Canada and a place down in Arizona, so you could maybe justify that. Um, um, but the thing that's interesting, birds don't store up, but birds also, birds work. You know, sometimes birds just sit on a post and they sing, and it's beautiful. But lots of times, like I see robins, like they're in our grass constantly working, looking for food to eat, building nests, taking care of their chicks. Birds don't just lay around by the pool waiting for God to take care of them. They also work. And it's interesting because I think we can develop a false or a faulty spirituality uh, from this if we take it too far. The idea that, you know, like it's super spiritual to just coast through life and expect everyone else to take care of you. I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about, actually. And actually, Paul addressed this in 2 Thessalonians to a church in Thessalonica, which is modern-day Greece. 
he says to them, uh, this quotes this kind of old uh, adage or saying or proverb that says, if you don't work, you don't eat. And so his point is, because he's talking to a church community that was expected to care for each other, but not so that somebody could abuse that care. Not so that someone uh, could come and join the group and then expect everyone else to take care of them and pay their bills. Because um, that's the thing, you know, when we care for people, as we should, as followers of Jesus, um, sometimes there are people in our church family who need help financially or with, with time or with work. And as a church, we should care for them. We should help. We should join each other. But when you have a community like that, there are people who will come and take advantage of it. Sometimes, uh, like kind of unintentionally, and sometimes very maliciously, very intentionally. And I know this church has had experience in years past of people who've come, who've joined the church mainly to take advantage of the church. And so we have to be careful of that as well. And it's interesting because as we look at this, this story, this parable of birds, one is that we realize that God provides. And in the case of birds, he provides what they need. It's not elaborate. I mean, birds, they have nests, like I think of some of the nests that we have around our house. You know, they aren't giant condos. They don't even have running water. <laughs> you know, but God provides. And it's interesting because um, God provides, and it's not the same for all the birds. Some birds have, like some, like we have a small birdhouse that the Hansels, that Bill Hansel made for us, like a finch house. You know, but many birds just live in the trees. They just have nests in the trees. So God provides, not always the same for everybody, but he provides. So Jesus' main point here is don't worry. Okay, that's the main point. And the the thing we can draw from this story, from this analogy or this metaphor of the birds is don't worry because God loves you. That's the point. He says, doesn't God love you more? God cares for the birds, and how much more does he love you? The answer is he loves you a lot more. You are created in his image. And it is hard for me to express in this moment how deeply God loves you. God cares for you. Because we're meant to trust God. We're meant to rely on him. It's not always easy. Sometimes actually trusting God can be extremely difficult. Sometimes it can be extremely painful. But I believe ultimately it is always good. And I say that having gone through some pretty painful things in my own life. I've seen how God has worked good in them. God has redeemed them. Okay? So he says, don't worry, because one, first thing, God loves you. Now he makes his second point. He says, who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? Has anybody been successful with that? I'm going to worry really hard and see if I can't add a couple hours, maybe a couple days onto my life. No. No, we all know this. Worrying, we can't add an hour onto our life. In fact, they've done the studies the opposite, right? To prove the opposite, that the more we worry, the more likely it is to take time off of our life. In terms of the physiological, all the stuff that happens in our bodies, cortisol, all that stuff, and the damage, the havoc it wreaks. Um, not only that, but just the stuff we do, the decisions we make, how miserable it is to be worried all the time. So no, we can't add a single hour <laughs> to our life. So Jesus' point again is don't worry because God loves you, but also because it's a waste of time. Worrying is a waste of time. It's that time where we don't do anything about the situation other than sit and fret. 
It's waste. The tricky thing is it can feel like we're doing something, and it's also a natural response, right? Especially for things that we feel like we have no control over, or we feel like we're stuck in, to just worry and worry and worry about it. But the trouble is it literally does nothing. Thinking of a movie I watched one time, and the guy said, you know, worrying is a lot like sitting in a rocking chair. It gives you something to do, but it doesn't get you anywhere. So then Jesus moves on to his last point. And he says, and why do you worry about clothes? And he adds this. He says, see how the lilies of the field grow? They do not labor or spin, in terms of make clothes. Um, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. For those of you who don't know, Solomon was like kind of, he was famous for being the, the wealthiest, the most luxurious king of all of Israel, of all their history. So like um, even the richest uh, Israeli king in all of his splendor was not dressed like one of these. That is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and gone tomorrow, is thrown into the fire. Will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. So this second uh, analogy or second parable is almost identical to the birds, right? The language is very similar. And again, it shows us how much more. He ends with how much more does God care about you? That's one of the points that he makes. But then there's this last little bit where he says, oh, you of little faith. And it's interesting because when we worry despite God's good promises to provide, we still have this sense that it's still up to me. That God has given us promises. God says, I will take care of you. It might not look, what you, might not look like what you expect, but I love you, and I care about you, and I will take care of you. And so when we start to worry about stuff, a lot of times it can betray a lack of faith on our part. That we actually don't trust God. Sometimes with our provision or situations that are happening in our lives. That we worry and we worry because we don't trust God or His goodness. So, get us back to the main point here where Jesus says, don't worry because God loves you, because worrying is a waste of time anyway. And because at the end, it shows our lack of faith that we don't trust God. So then Jesus brings it all back together with this. He says, so do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? Okay, he brings it all back together. And then he says this. He says, for the pagans run after these things. Now, pagans, uh, it was a very different connotation in Jesus' day. It meant basically the same thing. People without, who weren't following Yahweh, the God of Israel, um, in our culture, pagan is sort of a derogatory term, kind of like heathen. People don't like to be called heathen um, or pagans. Um, but the point is, he's talking about people who don't follow Yahweh, who don't follow the way of God, as Jesus is talking about. And in Jesus' day, the pagans were like the people from the wrong side of the tracks. Uh, maybe like to, the thing, I, closest thing I could think of was kind of like criminal. He might say, you know, criminals run after all these things, which isn't quite true. But I mean, none of us want to be a criminal. Just like in Jesus' day, nobody wanted to be a pagan. Nobody around him wanted to be a pagan. So it's already kind of setting it up. Like this is the wrong crowd. If you find yourself doing something that a pagan does, Jesus would say, or the the underlying assumption would be like, you need to reevaluate what you're doing. Okay? So when he says run after, 
here. The, the Greek word underneath this is epizeteo, which you don't need to worry about, but it has this sense of, of chasing after, of doggedly pursuing, incessantly pursuing, of almost like this obsession with something, this compulsion to do something, all right? So he's kind of like the, the, the pagan or the other people who aren't following God, they are compelled. They can't help themselves from running after, from seeking, from looking for, pursuing these things. So it says, not only do you not want to chase it like them, but then he starts to tell us what we should do. Oh, sorry, and he says this. He says, and our Heavenly Father knows which, that you need them. Okay, so, so first of all, don't do it because that's what the pagans do. But not only that, God knows what you need. God knows what you need better than you know what you need. That's easy for us to forget. It's easy for us to forget that God is omniscient, which is the big fancy word for saying God knows everything. He knows you better than you know you. He knows what you need. Not just what you want or what you think you need. God knows what you need. I was reading this this week and I saw it a few times. Um, God knows our needs and is less concerned with our greeds. Or maybe another way of saying is God knows what you need and is not necessarily concerned with what you want or knows what you need versus what you want. Because there's all sorts of stuff that I want. (laughs) I have to work on that. But God knows what I need, and I see him providing faithfully everything, actually more than I need. So, for Heavenly Father knows what we need. Now Jesus moves on. He starts giving us some some positive or some some things that we can do. So he's been warning us who not to be like. Now he's going to start giving us some indications, some teaching on what we should do. All right? So first thing he says is seek first his kingdom. Seek first God's kingdom. And this idea of seeking God's kingdom, you know, just so it's not confusing, he's not saying go looking for God's kingdom like a pot of gold somewhere. He's not saying that. By seeking, he means follow the path that leads to God's kingdom. And the the path to God's kingdom is not a, a walkway that we walk. It's a way that we live. So the, the pathway to God's kingdom, the way we find it, is by following the path. And the path is things like devotion, spending time praying and getting close to God, reading God's word, doing things like um, gathering on Sunday mornings to worship God, to praise God, spending time in prayer, serving other people, blessing other people, helping others. These are the sort of things that walk us along the path towards God's kingdom. These are the sort of things that God loves it when we do them. Okay? So he says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. The two are very closely linked. And maybe you might even say, I think you can make a good case that they're basically saying the same thing. But just for the sake of taking Jesus at his word, I think actually too, by God's righteousness, he means, again, the pathway to righteousness like God's. Again, this is things like getting close to him, devotion. Maybe this one is a little bit different in terms of maybe including some disciplines, some spiritual disciplines on our part. So we start saying, you know, we start going, going without or sacrificing what we consume so that we have more to share with others. 
Or maybe the discipline of obeying God, even when it's not pleasant, or maybe it's even really difficult. And yet we do it faithfully to pursue, to walk along the path towards God's righteousness. And I would say, and I think Jesus means this by this whole Sermon on the Mount, that our righteousness grows in the process. That our sense of righteousness grows. Okay. So he says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Do this first. And then he says this, and then all these things will be given to you as well. Referring to things like food, water, and clothes at very least. Now I was thinking about this too, is how um, at first, I don't know, I wonder how many of you read this as an individual. Because I know that was my first uh, inclination. To read this, when Jesus says, you, he means each of you individually. All right? And so he's saying, I think it'd be wrong if we say this as, if, if I'm faithful, um, God will reward me. And there are some churches that actually teach that. And, and I don't want to talk badly about other churches, but I don't think that's what Jesus means here. There's some Christians who get the idea, you know, if, if I am faithful with this little bit, God will give me back ten times as much. And so it's almost like, um, kind of like buying a lottery ticket or like an investment. Like faithfulness to God is not about faithfulness, it's about selfishness. If I give this to the church, then I'll get ten times as much uh, in return. And that's not what Jesus is saying. I think that would be the wrong motive. I also see like a, a, a subtle and slightly different but related thought, which is one that I've had to work through, is the idea that, well, if I do it one time, if I sacrifice for God, then everything after that is sort of mine to keep. You know, I guess, you know, if I was faithful back in my 20s, I started following Jesus, and so everything that I've earned or God has provided me since then is sort of like my reward for being faithful all that time ago. I was thinking about that and how um, when I was 26, um, I was working, I was a product manager, I mean, mid-level, no big deal, but I mean, I was 26, traveling around the world, I was making more money than I knew what to do with uh, for a telecommunications company. Um, and all sorts of personal things went wrong, and I began following Jesus. And I, I didn't want to work there anymore. And so I quit and began pursuing God. Actually, they had a layoff because of um, stuff happening, but so I, I volunteered for it um, and began following Jesus. And so, you know, sometimes I've wondered, like, God, is that what you mean by this? That, you know, I was faithful in that one moment, and so everything after that is sort of like my reward for being faithful, which is, I don't think, what Jesus meant. Um, you know, we, <laughs> I was, uh, for example, when, after, when I resigned from my job, the unemployment I got, I made more money than Tracy did as a working teacher. And so my point is, is that, like I was doing pretty well, left all that to follow God. And I remember some of those first few years when we were in Vancouver, there was a lot of beans and rice for dinner. <laughs> Living in Vancouver in basement suites that would flood pretty much uh, any time it rained hard. Um, you know, so there were times where it was a pretty drastic change. But I think about it now, um, about how fortunate we are. You know, the home that we have. Um, the living that the church gives us. And I am grateful. And trust me, it is not lost on me how fortunate I am, how fortunate we are. But here's the thing. I didn't 
there are some that do it, but it's very rare. I didn't become a pastor because I wanted to get rich. I became a pastor because I wanted to follow Jesus and I wanted to love and care for his church. Now it happens that the church pays me well and I'm grateful. But that does not house that does not in some way make it mine to just do whatever I want to with it. My point is, is that Jesus is not saying like, oh, if you've had a moment sometime back in your life when you were faithful, that doesn't mean that you get to just keep everything after that as reward. I think that would be the wrong way to look at it. I am still wrestling with, um, as God blesses me, how do I take what I need? How do I share more? How do I do that? So this passage raises a few questions. This also passage also raises another question on the opposite side in terms of there are people who seek his kingdom faithfully, who pursue God's righteousness, and their needs are not cared for. And they are barely surviving. And some of them are actually even dying. How does that work? What do we, how do we make sense of this promise when faithful people starve and die? When faithful pastors, faithful Christians are martyred for their faith or they just can't make ends meet and their children die of malnutrition places like South America or Africa. How do we make sense of that? I don't have a good answer for us this morning. Those are big questions like why do good things, why do bad things happen to good people? There are not easy answers for that. Some of it I think is the, the most helpful answer I've ever come across is that this world is broken and doesn't work the way that it's supposed to. There's lots of other ancillaries, other sort of types of responses like that, but it's a big question. And it got, it got me thinking something. So I was reading something that's actually about some other New Testament scholars and how do they make sense of this. And it's interesting because I was listening, I was reading, uh, he's a New Testament scholar's name is Craig Blomberg. He's a, he's, um, evangelical uh, New Testament scholar. And I was reading an article he wrote on this passage. And he made a great point of pointing out that, he says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all of these things will be given to you as well. How many of you, probably like me, like I did all week, read this as you individually? That was my first assumption. But actually in the Greek, this you here is actually you all. If we're in the South, it would be y'all. Given to y'all as well. as Maybe all of you, you all individually. But what if it's also all of you collectively? So that you, God, will take care of us, not just you individually, but you, us, as a church. That those of you who are struggling to make ends meet, there are also people in our church who have more than they need. And we care for each other. To help kind of drive this home, so it's maybe from you all to you all as a group, that these things will be given to us as a group to care for each other. It's interesting because in Luke's version of this same saying, when Luke wrote it down in his gospel, he actually adds this, it almost reads almost the same, except there's this one part where he says, sell your possessions and give to the poor. Reminds us of what was happening in Acts, 
or reminded me, in Acts 2, the church was growing like crazy, the Spirit had filled them, and people in the church were selling things to make sure that everybody had enough. I don't think they were selling everything, but some people said, you know what, I've got like, you know, famous like extra field, or I've got a house that I'm not using. What if I sold that? Because there's people in the church who need help. And it's not like, oh, I need help because I don't have cable, but more like I need help because I don't have food to eat. All right? So they were helping each other. So when we're seeking of the kingdom of God and his righteousness, I think Jesus is saying that as a group, as a church, we will have enough and we have a responsibility to help each other, to care for each other, to make sure that everybody in our church family has food to wear, uh, or sorry, food to wear, food to eat, clothes to wear. Please don't wear your food. <laughs> um, we might not all have the same, but it's up to us. Well, not up to us. It's important for us as the church, as God's people, to make sure that everybody has enough. Maybe not the same. Maybe we don't all drive the same car, but we make sure that people have what they need. Okay. Then Jesus closes with this last word. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. This is a good reminder to stay focused on today. When we get wrapped up in worrying about what's coming down the line, we miss what's happening today. And worrying about stuff in the future is a waste of time. We've already talked about that. And it reveals a lack of faith, saying, we don't actually trust you, God, with the future, so I'm going to worry my head off about it. I just want to say this, too. I don't think Jesus is against planning. I think it's wise for us to plan. He's against us worrying or letting our fear drive our planning that we plan so much that we have way more than we will ever need and yet we're still worried that we don't have enough. That's, I think, what Jesus is addressing here. Okay, so let's get down to it. How do we work this out in our lives? How does this work out in perfect peace? First thing, first part is stop worrying, which... Easier said than done, right? <laughs> um, but we kind of worked through that already about how remind, remember, remembering that God loves you. God loves you more than the birds and he takes care of them. Remembering that worrying is a waste of time. It does not help. And, the, and uh, remembering that worrying reveals a fault in our faith. We still think it's up to me or we still think that money is my security. That's how I make life work. So, don't worry. And if I were to stop there, and if I were sitting in your place, I'd say, like, well, thanks for nothing, Jason. <laughs> like, stop worrying is like the worst advice. But let me add some more to it. So stop worrying. The next one is practice trusting. And I mean this by practicing. You know, because it'd be miserable to go through life just trying not to worry. I'm just going to try not to worry. Oh, dang, I worried again. Okay, I'm going to try harder next time. That's not what Jesus is saying. That's not what we've been talking about these whole last few weeks, that actually we begin practice trusting. We practice trusting God. Uh, when Tracy was finished with her, all of her cancer treatment, it was after her last surgery, I worried constantly, literally constantly. I, there was, like, I could not think of a time throughout the day when I was not worried about her cancer coming back. I thought about it all the time. It was hard to do anything else. I worried about it. I, I, I literally worried. I remember going and meeting and talking with a counselor and you know, her talking about the way that when we worry, it like wears a path in our brain, a cognitive path. 
And we just, it almost like, I didn't even have to think about it. I didn't have to even think like, oh man, why am I not worrying about it? It just overwhelmed me. I could hardly do anything but. And she started talking about it. And she said, Jason, you know that? You will wear a path in your brain. Your brain sets up neural, um, neural synapses and it just, it's like becomes like a super highway. And she said, well, one, let's get underneath that, figure it out. And she said, when you start having these thoughts, like start giving thanks as well. Because Tracy was healed. And God had shown me numerous times and spoke to me numerous ways that she was okay. And so I kept going back to those things. And every time I started worrying, I would, I would work through it. I mean, it wasn't natural, but I would do it on purpose. I would start giving God thanks for her. Thanks for my time with her, that we had another day. And remembering all the ways that he had reminded me, all the ways he had talked to me and encouraged me that she was going to be okay. And now, years later, it's getting easier. It's becoming more natural. When I start worrying, I also start giving thanks for her. And it's not only that, but in numerous other ways, it's made me grateful for my wife uh, in ways that I don't think I would have been if we had not gone through this. So first one is practice um, trusting. Uh, the next part of it too is maybe like when you pray, keep a journal. Pray and you ask God for help, you write it down. Because we take God for granted. It's just how we are wired. Most of us, we pray, God does something amazing, and we're like, thanks God. Oh, by the way, I need these things as well. Well, wait, that was last week. No, this week, here's what I need. That we write God's faithfulness down so we can go back, we can keep track of it, and we can keep praising God. That builds trust in us. The last one is, is similar. And so rather than just praying and seeing God's um, faithfulness, we also obey so we do what God is asking us to do. We, we faithfully follow him. And then we watch, and we watch for the results. And then we remember how God, when we look back on those times, we can remember and say, you know, God, I remember. I did this, I trusted you, and you came through, and it worked. It may not have been easy, but it was good, and I trust you. These are the sort of things we do to practice trust. Praying, keeping track, obeying, and watching the results. The last one is this. Practice sharing. This is what we've been talking some more about today. Talk about sharing in terms of, um, you know, some of you, like, you are legitimately just barely getting by. And so for you to think like, man, you know, Jason, you're asking me to like give 10%. Like, what are you talking about? And that's, I'm not talking to you. I think it is good to share what you're able. Maybe it's not money. Maybe it's time. Or maybe it's uh, gifts or talents that you have. But share. Keep practicing. For the, the majority of us who have more, you know, like 10% is a great place to start. But I don't think we need to stop there. I think if we um, have way more than we need and yet we're patting ourselves on the back saying, well, I gave my 10%, the, the minimum or whatever, or the, the least, then I'm good and get to keep the rest. I think that's maybe not what Jesus intended. And I've heard some really great um, teachers talk about it. They call it a graduated tithe. So the more you make, the more income you have, you actually grow your sharing. I'm sure you get to keep more. I mean, like, you know, as a percentage in terms of that. Um, but you also share more as well. The, as, our, as our wealth grows, we share more with people. And I was thinking about this too, that you know, sometimes it can feel daunting as we look about all the trouble in the world. You know, maybe we just share with people in our church at first because there are people in our church who need help. Or then maybe it's our community. You know, if people in our church are kind of cared for, if everybody has enough, then we start looking at people in our community who don't. And then we start looking at people around the world and we start helping maybe like sponsor a child or help missionaries 
work with compassion. So this is kind of the big picture. These are three things that we can do. Practice trusting. Oh, dang, I put it twice. <laughs> Practice trusting. That one's supposed to be stop worrying. No, maybe that's the Holy Spirit. That was a bad advice. Stop worrying, practice trusting, and practice sharing. I just want to end with this. A couple weeks ago when I was preaching on practicing generosity, um, later that week somebody came up to me and said, you know, how is that? You're like basically preaching to the choir. And I do want to say this. I am grateful for you. I have heard time and time again from people who come and who see the generosity of this church and they are astounded. We fight way above our weight. This church is generous, and I am grateful for you. And so if there are some of you who are worried, come and talk with me. I'd love to help you with this. I don't know that I have all the answers. Maybe we can help each other. But I think God wants us to keep sharing with each other to make sure that people in our church family have enough, people in our community have enough, and two, that, that we aren't worried, that we aren't strapped and worried about how we're going to make ends meet because we have an amazing God who loves us more than he loves birds and lilies of the field. We have a faithful God. Amen.